This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Hello, I'm James Denos, and this is CNIB Read. Welcome back to our exploration of science fiction. In our previous conversations, we spoke with Annabelle Ford, Mari Fulcher, David Plank, and Bennett McArdle. Today, our first guest is Yvonne Felix. Yvonne is an award-winning visual artist, entrepreneur, and outreach advocate based in Hamilton, Ontario. Hello, Yvonne. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. Before we begin our conversation about science fiction, I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on my brief introduction of you. Please tell our listeners something more about your background and work and perhaps your relationship with CNIB. Sure. So I started out uh, interested in the visual arts, and I wanted to really explore um, how would I start a business? How would I make art, which is very personal to me? And it's also, you know, fundamentally how I function. How do I make this digestible to the general public? Because art always seemed very elitist to me um, in being able to achieve, I guess if you want to think about like joining an industry or being part of a club. Um, so I kind of, I went forward in thinking, well, if I start my own business selling my art in different ways that people can afford it, then uh, maybe I'd be able to get the messages that I wanted out. And I've always been involved with CNIB as first a client. And then over the years, wanting to wanting to be part of the mission. So uh, making art accessible or the fine arts accessible was one way. Uh, another way was just talking about my different experiences with sight loss and how I didn't I didn't really see them as something different from other human experiences, just another way of, of um, you know, being a part of humanity. What type of art do you create? What is your niche, your genre? Uh, so... Public and community art, I guess, is the official name of uh, my practice. And what that means to me is whatever media I need to find or whatever whatever is the best way to provide the message that it's not just my message, but what different communities want to communicate. So it could be sculpture, which I've dabbled in, uh, large-scale installations, because I really like the idea that the environment and the sculpture which I consider to be the positive and negative space, are two things working together. So it's always sort of about the the positive and negative, the yin and yang, so that, that balance that makes an art piece whole. Because you can't just have one didactic view of what what a message is or what an art piece is. It, it needs to encompass all aspects, all senses. Um, so... You know, that could be video, that could be audio, could be an incorporation of all of them. Um, painting, I love painting, but again, that's part of my process. And if there is something about it somebody likes when they look at it, then great. And if they, you know, if it's a stepping stone to, to a bigger project, then it is what it is. You mentioned engaging all the senses, and I, I, I would assume that includes the tactile. Yeah, it does. But I, I find it really interesting, though, because to me, tactile means from means a translation. So from what I understand, when somebody uses their eyes, you know, when you say that a picture means a thousand words, the translation to me is 
there are a thousand things you could touch in that picture with one finger. Mm. And so how do you take that understanding and put it into, you know, one sculpture probably made out of, tra uh, you know, traditionally one material? And how do you keep it outside for a couple hundred years, maybe even thousands of years, you know, if you're lucky? So I, I like to think of the tactile experience as a translation of what what would somebody feel a thousand different ways. That's very interesting indeed. Um, I understand that you, on occasion, wear the e-scythe glasses. Yeah. Now, could you explain to our audience what those are? Sure. So e is a head-mounted device that actually allows someone access to their remaining working photoreceptors. So essentially, you you have to have partial sight to be able to use them. What it does for me personally is it, I use it as a tool to be able to access part of a sense to enhance it. So, you know, with without the device, traditionally, I would use a magnifier or I would use Zoom text. And those items on their own, those technologies or solutions on their own, Issei for me sort of act I guess the best way to describe it is um, a prosthetic macula. Like all the things that my macula, the back of my eye, didn't do, this device externally without an operation provided me access. Now, not 100% access uh, in terms of looking at an eye chart, but in terms of quality of life, it provided me, some. sometimes depending on the situation, 100% access to what someone would consider their sight. So it it essentially taught me all of the things that existed that I had a theory about. So I was always on the search for like the what if, or um, I guess the best way to describe it was communication. Like I, I didn't necessarily want to use them to see essentially, although that's sort of a byproduct, but I wanted the confirmation that there is another language there are a way to communicate, which is through eyes, and and what does all that encompass? So most of my life was looking for, you know, what those markers are, and that device helped me understand and then develop that language so I could communicate through sight. When you first started wearing them, how did they affect your art? Yeah, it was a little earth-shattering at first because I realized that what I had created in theory actually had um, at sometimes a very different visual output or um, sensory intake. So, you know, with, with the visual part of it, what I called certain colors were not, but people had reacted the same way, like audience-wise, people had reacted the same way that through my process, I emotionally wanted to uh, engage with people and, and get them to an emotional state so we could have a sense of connection. Um, so when I understood that a lot of the a lot of the visuals that I was creating um, through that sensory intake didn't it didn't necessarily match what my sensory output would be, but um, it still derived the same emotional state. So you know I'm still trying to figure out what that means, but I know that it it definitely means that I had a I had a different perception. So I spend a lot of time making decisions whether to go back or not and look at my art and try to understand where I 
where I was at with it. You know, did I want to see it in a different way? And if I did, what kind of growth would that mean? Or, you know, what would be the emotional impact? Um, faces were, were something that I never drew. I would always just leave it out. And um, I tried, you know, I tried doing things like drawing faces and like adapting to color palettes that, um, you know, someone would say traditionally with their eyes, like, you know, this is green, this is yellow. And then I realized, I don't think I care. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care. It's a different language. That's what I realized. It's just a different language. And I love learning languages. So that's how I took it. So you, 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 in a sense, you, you acquired a different accent. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Well, you know, you used a phrase that's a perfect segue into our subject of conversation today. You said, I'm always in search of the what if. Mm -hmm. And that's what science fiction is all about, the what if. Mm -hmm. What if. Tell me, what what first interested you or hooked you on science fiction and what was it? Oh, my gosh. I could go real deep with that question. Go for it. Okay, why not? Uh, So two things. One was my dad was a huge science fiction fan. Mm. Like I don't think I know any different. Like it's it's part of my cultural genetic makeup. Mm. Um, I think I think probably you know generation wise, like I think there was always that desire to to explore and to expand and to see humanity from not like a 30,000 foot view, but be connected universally. Like I just, I feel that inside of me. I feel that with my family members too. Like we all love science fiction. Um, So I would, I would say it's a generational desire for the what if. And then the other was, uh, you know, having, having lived with, a variety of different experiences and, and events. Uh, I just learned that the, the way I am is okay with me, but the world isn't designed for boo-boos. The world isn't designed for accidents. It's always it's always about running and band-aid something. Um, you know, for example, when I, was, I was hit by a car when I was seven and I broke everything and had re you know reconstructive surgery on my face and um you know at this point in my life i'm starting starting to feel it but growing up like i just i just couldn't accept that i if i have to walk differently than i am right now then that's just going to be a part of me like it's going to be who i am and i'm going to find resources to make sure that I'm being the the best of my capacity uh, or the best of of my human potential, besides my body failing. So, you know, I was always I was always really focused on how can I enhance my human experience. And boy, would I love to be a robot! Like I just remember being obsessed with the idea of being a cyborg. Like before I had even tried the e-psych glasses, I have a drawing. I, I know I have it somewhere of, you know, me walking across something that looked like a hollow deck and wearing something like Eastside. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it kind of reminds me like when I would read 
books that were written in the 1900s about, you know, what's the future going to look like? Yeah. And then I laugh now and I'm like, that is the future. Yeah. So I think I think there's something about, you know, putting it out there and projecting that there's a different type of existence that if you if you can get enough people on the same page, eventually you can make it a reality. Yeah, and of course, uh, uh, robotics is a, a huge part of, uh, of, of science fiction. Huge. So, so much has been written about it. Yeah. And not that many years ago, your eSight glasses would have been considered science fiction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was not possible, what, what 20 years ago. That's right. That, that would have been science fiction. That's right. So we're talking basically almost like Geordi's visor at this point, you know, on Star yeah. Trek. You know, right? Oh, that was my favorite character. Mm. Him and Data yeah. uh, were my favorite characters because I I could relate to them. Like I could relate to Geordi LaForge because he was just a person mm-hmm. and he had this thing, this banana clip that he wore right. on his face to, to make sure he had a and a job like he had an important job right like he was a member of the team and then data i just emotionally i connected with because i'm like you can get through life without emotions yeah. <laughs> being <laughs> constantly displayed and his his inability at times to be able to take in you know humor and i related to that so much because i was always so confused as to why people seemed highly emotional and why it affected their day-to-day lives right Right. Uh, you, you know, now, I never considered the, the uh, Geordi character to be limited at all, quite the contrary, because his visor enabled him to see the entire spectrum. Yeah. Not, not just the, the visible spectrum that, uh, that uh, most people can view. That's right. right? So I considered th- that to be a huge advantage for him. Right. Um, but was there, was there, in fact, a particular book that, that captured your imagination the most? Mm. <clears throat> I think there's definitely a couple. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of the very – so it's funny because books and movies I think were the two um, – had parallel existence to me in terms of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, however, books uh, – you know, it's a little bit of science fiction and a little bit of fantasy kind of mixed in and this idea that uh, – Religion is always kind of right behind those two things existing. Um, first book I read would have been Planet of the Dinosaurs. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's funny because I think there was also a movie made hmm. in the 70s. But the Planet of the Dinosaurs, I just – I loved the idea that somewhere out there, there was a parallel dimension that – existed that was earth but it hadn't happened yet Mm -hmm. so it was like being able to go back in time and almost relive evolution and how how the humans would have interacted with the dinosaurs too like i i found it entertaining it was almost like it was a comedy Mm. i found a lot of science fiction comedy and then a lot of it also terrifying but um just that that book i and I can't can't remember the author. I can't remember what it was written, but it was it just seemed it seemed so um like generalized. Like mm-hmm. a generalized understanding of what a dinosaur would be and what would happen if you got in a spaceship and found this planet accidentally. 
You know, so alternate history, alternate alternate dimensions, yeah. alternate evolution. Yeah. You know, I, I actually have a quote from one of your emails when we, we first approached you about this. Yeah. And, and you said, and the quote, uh-huh. I love science fiction that looks at the intersection of evolution, religion, and historical events. So that more or less sums up what you just uh, you just uh, told us. It's a little bit more intellectually. <laughs> well, you had time to sit down and figure it out, right? <laughs> but just a very practical question. Yeah. Do, do your eSight glasses allow you to read? Do you? Do uh, you, you know. Yes. So, so this is what's really interesting. Hmm. Yes, they do. Hmm. I can. However, because I was only able to actually read print for a very short amount of time hmm. um, before the disease that I had, uh, I guess, progressed to the point that I couldn't, um, my ability to read, I've learned, was actually, uh, it was done from a place of illiteracy. So it was all problem solving. Um, So when I read, it actually looks like Lego blocks or Tetris. And I have to to sort of understand the shape and then um, build the architecture of the sentence based on the shape. So the word the has three letters, but it has a specific shape. So mm-hmm. it kind of looks like an upside down L, right? Or it looks like an L, I would say, a fat L. So it's almost like you're dealing with hieroglyphics in some sense. Yes, know? it's symbolism. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Like words have symbolism. And so when I when I read, you know, now I use uh now I use, you know, magnifying um magnifying software that's inherently on whatever device I'm using and uh, speech-to-text or text-to-speech, vice versa. Um, so I, I use a lot of auditory. Um, I also listen to a lot of books. I think listening to books, which I still call reading, mm-hmm. um, I've been doing that for the majority of my life in Braille. Uh, Braille I found very useful because um, I also have a learning disability, that doesn't allow me to understand process. So I think, you know, in in being able to take in uh, the context of of what I'm reading, I need that auditory assistance as well. So I do I do appreciate the auditory with uh, being able to look at it. Uh, but with with eSight, when I was learning to read, I think one of the reasons why I when I was looking, I was looking at it as if it were Braille. Mm. Like I was looking for that oh, type of symbolism right. in words so that I could understand and translate because I found Braille way easier than actually reading. Because we understand the unknown in in, in terms of the known. Mm. That's all we've got is right. the known, right? So that's very interesting. Also, because once again, engaging more of your senses. Mm-hmm. So your uh, your love of science fiction mm-hmm. how has that influenced if it has influenced your art at all how it, mm-hmm. has it fired your imagination yeah um i'm just trying to think of the most logical way to try to explain something that's completely illogical illogical um so i have i have an understanding that how how i interpret my senses or how i my sensory input and output, there, there are sort of baseline things that are obvious, 
right? Like you breathe air in and out. Um, sometimes I'm so phys- physically aware of my body that the breathing in and out, I visualize it in my mind in a certain way. So connecting that example to science fiction, I guess I guess if I were completely candid, I've had to try to find a way to accept that I exist here. I exist in a world that apparently is completely constructed based on what people want to see with their eyes. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it really confuses me that your eyes can also make the biggest mistakes as to tangibly function. Mm-hmm. And your eyes, your, like your eye, this world requires things to look nice. Mm-hmm. And it's okay if they don't function, even though they work nice, they, they look nice. All right. So... Just that understanding in itself, like I'm supposed to get up every day and put makeup on mm-hmm. and I can't actually. Yeah, the surface eat. dimension. Yeah. Yeah. That, this this can't be all of it. Mm-hmm. It just can't be all of it. And right. so that opens up my imagination every second of the day to the possibilities because you have to, you have to see the possibilities and project that there might be other possibilities. Um, part of that could be from my need to always function with adrenaline. Yeah. <laughs> that could be it. I'm an adrenaline junkie, so mm-hmm. I always need to live in fear because who needs a functional amygdala? Like, let's forget about that. Yeah. Um, but also, like, it helps derive hope. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I have hope that, you know, things don't always have to be the way that they are. And I think part of that is just over the years being handed the, um, what's the best way to put it? Like, the outcome based on literacy that exists in the medical community. Mm-hmm. Like I'm all for research. Mm-hmm. I'm all for 25 years of testing. But but my experience is that if you're only putting me up against 100,000 test subjects that are supposed to be able-bodied and like that's the marker for able-bodied, mm-hmm. then you're going to be wrong about me. Mm-hmm. You're going to be wrong. Like you haven't taken into consideration human will and, you know, the future science fiction is the future of how we want to live. Like, it's the hopeful future, even if it's the doomsday future, you know. There's something about people dreaming about the the options that we could have as human beings that, you know, it, it it's all kind of wrapped in one for me. It's like I breathe it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, science fiction helps us define what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. What it means? What, what does it mean to be human? For example, AI. At one yeah. po- at what at what point does an AI being become a sentient being? That's right. And uh, and and worthy of rights. Yeah. Of the rights that every sentient being should have. Uh, that's coming. We're yeah. going to have to make those ethical and moral decisions. And so. When I listen to you, it's like you're redefining yourself mm. all the time, and you're exploring yourself and what it means for you to interact with the world. Uh, is that is that a fair summation? That's a very good fair yeah. summation. That's probably the most accurate someone's described me. Yeah. 
What do you think science fiction can give us that other forms of literature cannot?、Mm. What is the unique quality of science fiction? I think you touched on it earlier. Is that there is an emotional intelligence to science fiction, and it's it's that emotional intelligence that looks at the baseline of of human need. You know that that hierarchy of of needs that we try to achieve or will make us whole in life. Maslow's laws of、uh, or hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So. You know, if you if you look at the breakdown of storyline, it always seems to hit on you know things like sense of belonging. You know, if you think of、um, if you think of the time machine,、mm. you know, and journeying through humanity to see what's happening, and when it gets to the end, and there's you know there's nothing but well not the very end, but you know the part where everyone is sort of standing around and they can't read and they can't write and they're running away from the other human beings who are going to consume them. You know that's terrifying in a sense,、mm-hmm. but at the same time, it talks about the balance and the need for survival, and that there's still a them and an us.、Mm-hmm. So it's to me, you know, that's that's very primitive, and、yeah. it it shows in that whole book that we just we cycle through, we cycle through our needs and our drive for you know if you there is this book that I read called Ember、uh, Ember of the Sun. And it was about、um, it was about an explorer who、uh, found a found a cave, an ice cave, where it was all Neanderthal frozen,、mm-hmm. and there was a woman with her baby, and you know he took one of the bodies out and harvested harvested eggs,、mm-hmm. and tried to you know tried to bring back Neanderthals. Tried to clone them or bring yeah. them back. Yeah, and then the is <clears throat> fascinating to me because the whole story was about how. She didn't fit in, and she was still isolated. And you know her her ways and her practices and her understanding of herself, the character who was、uh, genetically, you know, genetically cloned.、Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she just she was walking through the world puzzled and trying to find meaning for her existence. Where was her place? Where was her place? Yeah, and that's again like the sense of belonging. You know, these are just. Just needs. So I think, I think understanding ourselves and looking at ourselves as as humanity and our how we function in a different context. You know, it puts distance from us, right? So we can see ourselves in a different space,、mm-hmm. in a different place, in a different、mm-hmm. time,、right. and we can imagine. But you know, imagining and being able to kind of look at things from a different, a different lens, a different perception. I think it really allows us to. To think of those endless possibilities, you know, it's it's us looking in a mirror, but apparently from a very far away place, or through the eyes of even another species,、mm-hmm. right? And、uh, because it seems, especially nowadays, one of the hardest qualities to attain is empathy. Yeah, being able to put oneself in the place of another, right? I've got all kinds of thoughts on. Well, let's hear them. Empathy. <laughs> well. You know, I'll take the example of because、uh, it's relevant of trying to help someone understand what it's like to have sight loss,、mm. and you know, putting simulator glasses on doesn't do anything because it's temporary.、Uh, it doesn't doesn't connect to you psychologically what's happening. 
and how your eyes are connecting to your visual cortex or they're not. And if they're not, how are they connecting to the visual cortex? Because they still are. So your sensory input, like how you're taking in information is is actually what people need to empathize with. So, you know, if I think about possibilities, I think about, you know, what if we could physically make someone understand what it's like to use a cell phone with mm. magnification, right? So again, this this connects to my art. Like I'd love to make an art installation where as someone walks, like imagine a projection on a wall. So there's a light source, right? And you're in, uh, let's say, a 30 by 20 room. Okay. It's a super tall ceiling, right? So you have, you have this sense of all this space around you. So, you know, I'm thinking about negative, positive space. So the negative space is all the stuff going on around you that you may or may not notice because you're so zoomed in on a phone that you're using magnification on. So you're only, when you magnify, you're only getting, you know, whatever, whatever information is available by that three by seven inch screen. And so imagine if you are, oh, that's a big phone anyways, so, or tablet. So imagine as you're walking closer to this wall that the content within the projection that is the size of your phone gets bigger and bigger. And the closer you get, do you know how frustrating that would be to someone who doesn't engage on a daily basis with magnification? You're only getting maybe... 0.01% of the information that you need in that whole screen. And then you have to walk back and forth to use your body as a mouse to navigate through the information because you're only getting one letter at a time. So for example, if you wanted to see the time on your on your lock screen, it says 10.30 a.m., imagine from far away, you can kind of tell it's blurry, but you can kind of mm -hmm. tell where the objects are in the screen on the user interface. But then as you come closer, they get bigger and bigger and bigger so that it becomes abstract and you can't actually see what's on the screen. So how do you move around to try to make that number fit in the screen or so you can get that information? Like that's an art installation I think that engages and would help someone empathize with the physical experience of using a screen. That's quite a project. Have you, have you started working on developing that or? I mean, yeah, well, yes. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. always, so I am, I am someone that is, uh, I don't know, I'll really, like my father-in-law always comes up with these ideas, right? I'm going to make a million bucks doing this. Mm -hmm. And I feel like everybody has that dad or that uncle or someone, yeah. you know, that, that aunt out there, that somebody in your life that always has these ideas. So I'm someone that sits and like, I can have a million ideas all day long, but I know that you need action for these things. So I, I collect all these little ideas and then what I do is I start grouping them together into different projects because, you know, just like that categorical thinking, I know that's only one outcome of me feeling something from a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. So then I, so the answer is yes, I would, I am actively putting together the strategy for an exhibit that would explain not, you know, and that's just my personal experience, but I, I love, I love working with people. And then again, this is sort of the public art piece to get their experiences and help them articulate it. So that's where, you know, my art and science fiction would, would come together in being able to help build a communication and bridge language. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's the other thing that I, you know, I love about science fiction when, um, you know, you look at different 
you know, like you said, different uh, species, a whole different species. Like, oh my gosh, my favorite, one of my favorite book series is A Wrinkle in Time. Okay. And the, the, um, so when they're traveling and they, oh my gosh, I wish I could remember all of the names of all of the different lands that they went to or, or dimensions they went to. But when they, when they're in the dimension where nobody can see or talk, really and everything's telepathic and they're the, just so sort of these shapes these grays i think that's what mm. they were maybe called but these like gray blobby shape things that everything was through touch and it was all uh telepathy like that right there is an example of there's different types of communication that we're not even aware that we're doing and i love the idea of being able to pick up on Almost like the electrical pulse of a person, like the EMP that they're sending out. Like, you know, what what are you doing to with your body and with your words and with the way that you stand that you are communicating to someone? Are you, you know, are you even aware that you are communicating your discomfort or if you're happy or if you're sad or if you have two emotions going on at the same time? So like being able to take the whole sensory experience and give people the opportunity to communicate what's happening inside of them you know, one thing I think about is pain. Like we don't really have a very good method of exhibiting or explaining what actual pain someone is in. And when I look at the, you know, when I look around me, most of the time when people are, you know, isolating themselves or they're upset or they're a little grouchy, it's when you ask them, like they're they're physically discomforted either emotionally by something that's going on or vice versa, their body is sending them the message to, to like, you know, project that they're not feeling good. So, you know, just that, A Wrinkle in Time is like one of those series that I absolutely, absolutely love. And then again, it also has that, um, you know, that evolution or science tied in with philosophy and religion component. Because, it, it, you know, you travel through all these like sort of biblical historical events and, uh, and it's all about connection. Yes. <clears throat> Communication. Uh, some, sometimes we use language, languages we're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. So someone could be isolated even from himself and, yeah. his, and his own emotions, not realizing what he's yeah. feeling because he's, he's, he's cut off from his own feelings. Um, in fact, there have been some science fiction stories and novels where whole civilizations have been destroyed because of miscommunication. Yeah. You know, galaxy, uh, galaxies have been ravaged because of it. Yeah. But science fiction is such a hugely popular genre, both in, in, in literature, in the movies. What effect do you think it's had on our culture? Mm. I think it's had a huge – well, if you look at right now, you know, we have a, we have a technology boom. Like we can't even keep up with the things that we're developing. You know, I'll I'll take take Eastside as an example. You know, that it was brilliant. It was a brilliant invention, mm-hmm. and it worked. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I think mm-hmm. one of the things that we're doing is we're creating things without a rule book, right? It's the wild west. How people use technology. You know, I think about right now, like Elon Musk is talking about. You know put in little chips in our heads so that we can 
We can just upload information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, hey, where's the you, rule book? Would you go for that? Uh, 100%. <laughs> Me too. 100%. 100%. No, hey, I'm... If you could put a, a French chip into my head and oh, I'd know it immediately. <laughs> I, you know, I'm well, I, I already, like, I'm looking into, well, I have a... I have a sensor to read my blood sugar. Like the right. first time when I put that mm. in, because I've, I've had diabetes for 27 years. Mm. And when I put that in, my husband was so freaked out. He was watching me clean the spot. I have it up on my arm and I put the, in, you know, put it up to inject it in. And, you know, he was sitting there nervous and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, hallelujah. Like it's just, <laughs> just the fact that I actually get to be a, a little bit of a cyborg, and then mm-hmm. I can I can scan myself like a banana with my phone, like the the highlight of my day, and even even things like from my car accident when I when I talk about um, you know oh my gosh I gotta find a situation where I can like amputate my legs from the knee down because I'm so done with exercising my calves so I can use them yeah. and my feet like I'm yeah. so done with it. It well number one I guess don't share that information with your mother. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't take it well. Doesn't yeah. take it well. But it scares people and I and I sit back and if anything what science fiction has has done is it has normalized the idea that you can put machines in your body and that we can rely on machines. Like this this boom right now for AI. You know, given I've I've taken the time to educate myself on, you know, how how close are we to actually implementing what you know science fiction science fiction has said AI could do? And like the one thing I could be wrong, but my opinion is we are not organized as a civilization mm-hmm. uh, to give any machine the information to to destroy the world. Like yeah. we are not organized. We would need to be so on top of who we are as a society, mm-hmm. and and then even globally, like. Who who are we? What is humanity? Who is humanity? And the fact that we haven't figured out yet, you know, the secret to life and things like where did we come from? And, you know, mm-hmm. the things that I think would help would essentially if AI is a baby, like I'll take our phones, for example. Our phones, when they're blank, you know, they've been designed. Take Apple, right? Take Apple. Let's say Apple is the... Uh, god of the phones mm-hmm. right so designed closed system not sharing information unless it's with one of its same kind like right there that's that's categorical thinking we've embedded into those devices so then now through your use because there's a little you know allow system that you have to buy into to say that every time you dictate something your information's recorded so apple like lets you know we're basically taking all of your information and we're feeding ourselves to it. It's a, so. So is Google taking everything yeah, we do? Yeah. Every are, search we make. These are babies. Yeah. Right. Our phones are these little blank babies, mm-hmm. if you want to think of it that way. Right. And we're putting ourselves into it, not thinking, not thinking about what Google and Apple and all these, you know, these monster organizations. And I mean monster just as in big. Mm-hmm. You know, these big organizations, and we didn't even we didn't even think like, what are you going to do with it? You know, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook sends out this message saying everything belongs to us. Yeah. And unless you're able to read between the lines as to what that means. That means we own you. Yeah. <laughs> and we've just handed it all over. Right. And, and from what I see, people haven't thought about maybe not giving themselves completely to their technology. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, it's it's out there. And I think that's what scares me. But I think it's I think it's well, far away. Well, people do it because it's convenient and they say, they say to themselves, well, it'll be okay. Eh, it'll be yeah, okay. Yeah, no right? rules. No one, no one's thought about that. No one's no. thought about what what keeps us safe. What keeps us human? Like, no. like there are things like maybe we we can explore, but we don't need to make reality. Yeah, technology is developing so rapidly, more rapidly than uh, our ethical responses mm-hmm. to it. Well, I it's see just, it. I see it in kids. Right? Mm-hmm. They go on platforms. They make fake accounts, and uh, I guess I'm. I guess I'm divulging what I watch my kids do. Basically, right. yeah. this is this is my yeah. fifth nomination for Mother of the Year award. But you know, it's <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, I watch them; they're just copying everybody else. Like, they're not even asking questions because it exists, right? Just mm-hmm. like you know, turning the lights on and there's, uh, you know, light goes on. Yeah, you know, a hundred years ago, it's part of their environment. Yeah, like, you know, it's you like know, air. Exactly, it's just yeah. part of their environment, and. Yeah. And, you know, ethically, I I have to stop myself from, you know, my my instinct is to say, like, no, you can't can't go on it. And then the reality is, no, 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 they're going to go on it anyways. I have to set up the rules. I have mm-hmm. to figure out the rules for them. But but, you know, just oversharing, constant oversharing and like instant information. And mm-hmm. I just... I, there needs to be rules to cover this stuff because otherwise they're just going to grow up in a world where instant gratification is is the way it goes. Right. <clears throat> Problem is, of course, <clears throat> who determines those rules and what are they, right? Exactly. Because uh, we, we don't want to take away free free will from people. That's we don't right. want to take away their choices. So it, it really is a dilemma. And I like you. I'm very interested in AI and the interaction between uh, humanity and machines. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and of course, in science fiction, that is that is that is a meme. That is a theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, uploading, for example, one's mind mm-hmm. into a robotic body, into into mm-hmm. an android. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, okay, the 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 premise is that the mind is merely software, mm-hmm. and software can be uploaded. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you have ethical dilemmas, for example, in some of Sawyer's stories where you have the old person left in the flesh, the fleshy person. Mm-hmm. And you have the robotic person with exactly the same mind. Mm. And in, in one of his stories called Shed Skin, the, the old person, the, the biological person, no longer has that, the identity. Mm-hmm. Is kept is kept, you know comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's in a nice place, but no longer can even use the name of, of the person who has uploaded his consciousness. In other stories, the biological entity is destroyed. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, science fiction anticipates ethical dilemmas. Mm. Now, you like the books. You love the movies as well. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the major distinction for you? Do you get more out of the reading the books mm. or, or the movies? What, yeah. what, 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 what do the movies lose that the book has and perhaps vice versa? What can the movies give us that perhaps the books can't exactly? So my experience has mm-hmm. always been that the books have more. Mm-hmm. They just have more context in terms of story. You right. can really develop a character and live right. inside them and exactly. empathize with them. So movies don't have that because, again, 
the format that movies are in now are, you know, superficial. Mm-hmm. It's superficial, you know. Um, unless it's a psychological thriller, you don't necessarily get to see the four dimensions of a character. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is definitely missing from movies. Uh, the books as well, it's always the long version of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, like okay, so for example, Jurassic Park. Yes. One of my favorite books. The movies, the first movie, awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, and most of that, I think, was actually the soundtrack. Okay. Like, how emotionally uh, liberated I felt every time. Do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, like here comes a dinosaur. Like, yeah. you just knew, right? It didn't matter. I, I couldn't see any of the dinosaurs. Like, I had no emotional connection to what they looked like. It was the, like, oh, my gosh, everybody's seeing a dinosaur right now. And then the the fear when you know that dinosaur is coming for you. Here it comes. <laughs> so it brings the book to life, brings the words to life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yes. that was great about the movie. But the book was the storyline and like the scientific deep dive. And, you know, I I could tell because, um, you know, I I looked into like the resources that the book had for how is how could this actually happen? So, you know. The book was one thing, and then it it just spilled out into other books that I could go and read, like you know Jack Jack Horner's uh, How to Build a Dinosaur, and you know there was actually real things happening out there. So again, the the book had so much more context into how my imagination for possibility could be sparked. So here's a question: If you had one book to recommend to our listeners, mm. what would it be? I would say Jurassic Park. It's a really good book. Mm. It's just so different than the movies. Yeah. It really is. And and again, if you want to go down that rabbit hole of possibility, like there's so much in, like I love dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but more so I love the fact that they keep making boo-boos in understanding or mis- yeah. you know, like oh, that dinosaur, well that's actually a teenager, it's not even a species. Yeah. It's just a teenager once so, like the fact too that Science fiction is now helping with pointing out where where real scientists are making, you know, in the past history, like we can change the we can change the future in our understanding. So Jurassic Park is just it's so it's so rich. Mm, yeah, that's fantastic. Listen, and finally, what book do you think you'll read next? Do you have anything on the horizon for you to read? Oh, my gosh. Um so actually, it's funny. I I am now very interested in not science fiction, but the actual the parameters of what creates science fiction. So oh. I um, I spend a lot of time reading books about quantum mechanics yes. and you know mm-hmm. physics in general, and I am addicted to everything about general artificial intelligence. And you know, I've gone into understanding and reading books about map, mapping the brain and visual cortex. Well, so listen, listen, it's like there, a whole 180. There is soft science fiction. Yeah. And there's hard science fiction. But the very hardest science fiction is called reality. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, I find those subjects fascinating, too. And when you were talking about accidents, accidents, mm. well, apparently we are an accident. We're yeah. a quantum bubble. We are a quantum bubble. So if you think of the fragility 
of a quantum bubble. Mm. That enabled our existence, apparently. Mm. But, Yvonne, this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we go, one final point you'd like to make uh, for the audience about science fiction and your feelings about it? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Final thought? Just have fun. Life is just about having fun. And what I mean like about that is it's not just about taking things seriously and looking for all the concrete evidence and taking your taking your existence so seriously. Just just kind of enjoy it as it's happening because it's not very long. <laughs> no kidding. Not very <laughs> long indeed. Excellent advice. Thank you so much. It has been a delight talking to you, and it has been fascinating. Same here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.